Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. Actually, uh, it's going to be uh, beginning with the last couple of verses of chapter 21 through the sixth verse of chapter 22. This is the very Word of God. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father in heaven, we do come before you humbly this morning, asking that even, even in a somber, dark passage like this, Father, that you would open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear your gospel. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, this is a dark Passage In these verses, we see the birth of the plot that will eventually lead to Jesus' death. There are actually three enemies at work here, three enemies who conspire together against Jesus. First, there are the chief priests and the scribes. Second, there is Judas, called Iscariot. And third, there is Satan. And these three work together to put into motion a plot to kill Jesus. And I want us to look at each of these enemies just briefly. First, we have the priests and the scribes. We're, we're told in verse 2 that they were seeking how to put Jesus to death. But of course, this is nothing new. They, they've been doing this for a while now. We, we know uh, from uh, what Luke tells us that at least since Jesus arrived in the city, they were looking for an opportunity to get rid of them. Just scan back quickly to chapter 19, verse 47. This is after the, the triumphal entry, after the, the cleansing of the temple. And notice what we are told. He was in the temple teaching daily. So there it is. He's, he's teaching. This is exactly what he's been doing all week long. But the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his word. So from the moment Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, they were seeking to destroy him. They were seeking to get rid of him, but they were fearful of the people. We see the same thing in chapter 20, verse 19, if you'll turn over there. Here, Jesus has, has told a, a parable about some wicked tenants, and notice what we are told. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, but they feared the people. 
It's exactly what we see in verse 2 of chapter 22. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. But notice, it's not that they are seeking to put him to death because they fear the people, but they are seeking how to put him to death. They They are looking for a scheme. They are looking for some sort of plan. They are wondering how they can do what their heart is set upon doing because they feel that if they approach Jesus directly, if they simply go after him with a frontal assault, then it may lead to some sort of populist uprising. And so they are seeking, how can they do this? How can they pull it off? How can they get rid of this one who has been a thorn in their side for so long? And so they're seeking how to put him to death because they fear the people. But think what that tells us about the priests and the scribes. Think what that, that tells us about the true motives of their heart. The fact that they're looking for a scheme, the fact that they're, they're trying to come up with a, a plan, does this not tell us that their opposition of Jesus is less than honest? That it's not in good faith? That they aren't seeking to protect the truth, much less are they seeking to protect the, the people. They are not motivated here as good shepherds of the people of Israel, seeking to protect them from some false prophet, but rather they hate and oppose Jesus Because he is a threat to them. Because he is a threat to their position of power and to their position of privilege. It's not that they fear that Jesus might be leading the people astray. They don't seem to care much about that. But rather, what they fear is that he's leading the people away from them. And without the people, without their popular support, without the prestige that they offer, their positions are Threatened. Their true concern is not for the people, but for themselves. They're motivated by self-interest and selfish ambition. And of course, we see the same motivation in Jesus' second enemy, Judas, called Iscariot. We are told that Judas, who was of the number of the twelve, went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray them. How many of you might betray him to them? Now Luke doesn't give us the reason. He doesn't tell us explicitly what motivates Judas to do this, and so we're, we're left to, to guess. And there are some who, who try to be a little more sympathetic, and they suggest that, well, maybe Judas was trying to provoke Jesus to action. Maybe he was, he was trying to arrange a confrontation with the leaders so that Jesus would have to use his power to finally do what he came to do, to, to finally establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. But such a sympathetic reading seems unlikely to me for at least two reasons. First, Judas' betrayal isn't portrayed to us in any of the Gospels as a mere misunderstanding of Jesus' mission. We saw a misunderstanding when when Peter confessed Jesus as the Lord. Remember, Jesus went on to tell him, now that you know who I am, let me tell you what I've come to do. I've come to die. And Peter says to him, no, Jesus, stop talking like that. You don't need to to think that way. And Jesus rebukes him and says to him, no, what you're thinking is not the the plan of God, but the plan of Satan. And so we've seen misunderstanding. But Judas' betrayal of Jesus seems to be something far more sinister, something far more evil. And this is seemingly conferred by the little detail at the end of verse 5. Look again at what we're told. 
Luke tells us that the, the priests were glad when Judas came to them with his plan, and they agreed to give him money. They agreed to, to pay him. Judas isn't just trying to spur Jesus to action. He is selling him out. He is betraying him for money. And this tells us a lot about Judas. It's a point that I think John expands on in his own gospel. For John tells us that, that Judas had actually been helping himself to the funds that were donated to support Jesus' ministry the whole time. He had, so to speak, been in it for the money from the very beginning. He was a greedy man. And he saw in Jesus one who had the ability to raise funds. And so he attached himself to Jesus. And he helped himself to the funds whenever he saw fit. And given that fact, given what we know about Judas, given the fact that he betrays him for money, it seems clear that, that he is motivated by the same sort of self-interest, the same sort of selfish ambition that motivated the scribes and the priests. It's the same thing that we see motivating Jesus' third enemy as well. Notice what we're told. We're, we're told that then Satan entered Judas. Before Judas went off to the priest, before he, he went off to the priest to, to confer with him how he might betray Jesus, Satan entered. The language suggests something like demon possession. And for modern readers, this is one of the hardest things for, for us to believe and to accept in all of the gospel accounts. And in my experience, at least, we are, we are much more ready to believe in miracles and we are much more ready to believe in, in healings than we are to believe in demons and, and demon possession. It just seems so old school. It seems so archaic. It seems so superstitious. And I understand. I, I understand that skepticism. I understand that that hesitancy. But we need to understand that the Scriptures do not share our skepticism. The Scriptures, which are the very Word of God, the, the Scriptures, which are an Aaron and all they teach, the Scriptures teach us as clearly as they can that demons are real, that Satan is real, and he is dangerous. He is a malevolent enemy. Peter describes him as a roaring lion on the prowl, seeking whom we, he may devour. Paul tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against evil spirits. And we need to believe this. We, we need to believe that we have a spiritual enemy. But, but even when we believe it, what does it mean to say that he entered Judas? It's a difficult question. And, and the language, it, it seems to suggest some level of control, does it not? He, he enters him. He seems to, to take control of him. And that is terribly unsettling. In my house, we're big fans of superhero movies. And we're big fans of, of superhero TV shows. And one of the shows that we watch together as a family is a show called The Flash, about the fastest man on earth. But of course, they have all sorts of side characters in these TV shows as well. And in a recent episode, at least one we watched recently, I don't know how recent the actual episode was, but in, a, in an episode that we watched recently, there was a, a, a genetically enhanced gorilla who could mind control people and make them do things that they would never otherwise do. And so good people were doing bad things. And, and they, they had no warning. They had, they had no reason to suspect. They were just taken over. And I think sometimes we, we think that demon possession is something 
like that. But I want you to hear me say that, that that's not a picture of what the Scriptures depict. Rather, there's no reason to believe that Satan or any of his demons has the power to, to take control of an unwilling subject. Think of what James writes. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you resist him in the name of the Lord, he will flee from you. Not because you're so strong, but because the one who stands with you is stronger. Satan is the strong man who is bound by one stronger. What we see throughout Jesus' ministry, is it not? Do, do we not see throughout Jesus' ministry that even the de- demons are subject to him? And that those who go forth in ministry in his name have, have power over even the demons? Jesus is stronger. He is the king. As much as they hate it, the demons must obey. And so the demons have no power to, to take over an unwilling Subject, And this is why Paul warns us not to be willing subjects. This is why Paul warns us not to give a, a foothold to, to Satan by, by nurturing our sin, by nurturing anger or, or greed or, or lust. And it seems that's exactly what Judas had done. He had set his heart on mammon and therefore against Jesus. And for that reason, he was a fit tool for Satan. And Satan entered in to to use him for his purposes. And what was the purpose for which Satan wanted to use Judas? We see it clearly. He wants to use Judas to destroy Jesus. Because like Judas and, and like the priests and the scribes, he hates Jesus. And he hates his claim to the throne. He wants to be his own Lord. He wants to be king. And he cannot have Jesus standing in his way. And so, and these three enemies, all working together, conspiring together against Jesus, we see the same basic motive repeated again and again. All are motivated by self-interest. All are are motivated by a a form of, of selfish ambition. And I think this is instructive to us in at least two ways. First, it shows us the the basic characteristic of all of Jesus' enemies. Jesus' enemies are those who would be their own Lord. Jesus' enemies are those who contest His claim to the throne with their own claim. Jesus' enemies are those who would be the captain of their own This is sin at its most basic. We reject God and we reject His anointed because we long to sit on the throne of our own lives. We don't want to serve, we want to be served. We want to be the Master. And so to be Jesus' enemy, you don't have to be some sort of monster. To be Jesus' enemy, you don't have to delight in pain and destruction. You don't have to be a a sociopath. To be Jesus' enemy, you simply have to love yourself more than him. You simply have to put your own interests first. You You simply have to assert your own claim to the throne above his. You simply have to demand the right to be the captain of your own ship. 
I think we need to see this in the evangelical church today because, because I think there's a great deal of confusion about what it means to trust Jesus to be your Savior. That's, that's common language. Sam mentioned it in, in Sunday school this morning. He says when people talk about the gospel, we need them to define their terms. What do they mean? What do they mean by salvation? What do they mean that they're, they're trusting Jesus for salvation? Because it seems to me that in many cases, What people mean when they speak about trusting Jesus for salvation is that they mean that they are trusting Jesus to give them the life they want. They have have defined a life that is good. They have defined a life that they find appealing. They say, I'm trusting Jesus for salvation. I'm trusting Jesus to give me what I want. But do you see that when you define salvation that way, you're still on the throne. You're the one in charge. You're the one defining the terms. And that is not the gospel taught to us in the New Testament. Trusting Jesus for salvation is not trusting Jesus to give us the life that we want. This is why our catechism says that that we trust Jesus for salvation as it is offered to us in the gospel. You see, salvation is defined by the gospel. Salvation is is defined by God himself. And what is the salvation that God defines? The salvation that God defines is a salvation back to a right relationship with him. Where he is God and we are his people. Where he is creator and we are creature. Where he is Lord and we are servants. This is the salvation that he offers that we would be rightly related to him. Not that we would be masters and that he would be our genie in a bottle, but that we would be his servant, at his disposal, rightly related to him, living for the praise of his glory in all we do, stored in all the resources that that he has, has given to us in his service. This is salvation. This is the The gospel. And so when we reject servanthood, when we cling to our own right to rule our lives, as we see Judas doing, as we see the scribes doing, as we see Satan doing, when we cling to our own right to be in charge, we make ourselves the enemy of God. So think for a moment, how does does that tendency show up in your own life? How does this this tendency to want to be in charge, to want to sit upon the throne, to crown yourself rather than Him, how does that show up in your own life? I'm sure you can imagine any number of ways. I'm sure you can imagine the way that this impulse shows itself in your marriage and the way that you relate to your spouse, wishing that they would serve you rather than thinking of how you can give yourself in their service. I'm sure it shows up in your parenting when you want your your children to make you look good rather than giving the effort to raise them in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. And if you're a child, I'm sure it shows up in the way you relate to your parents' parenting. You'd, You'd rather not listen. You'd rather do your own thing. You'd rather lean upon your own understanding. And we could go on. It shows up in your extended family. Some of you may be gathering with family even today. How will this tendency to to want to sit upon the throne show up in your gatherings even today? How will it show up in work this week? How will it show up in your neighborhood? How will it show up even right here at church? We are not immune. Remember, Judas was one of the twelve 
even amongst Jesus' own disciples, this, this tendency was there. It was, it was prevalent. And so if we recognize that we're not immune to this, if we recognize that this, this same impulse that was in Judas, the same impulse that was in the priest, the same impulse that's even in Satan, if this same impulse is in us, what are we supposed to do? I want to suggest to you that at this moment, having seen the, what it means to be the enemy of Jesus Christ, we are called to go in exactly the opposite direction. We are called in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit to resolve to, to deny ourselves, to say, to say no to our own ambition, to, to crown Him with many crowns, to acknowledge Him as our rightful Lord. We, we cannot serve both Jesus and self, and so therefore we must resolve to bow to Him as King, to confess Him as our rightful Lord. And we must seek the grace of the Holy Spirit to do it. Think about our confession of faith this morning. We don't do this in our own power. We do this because He is already at work in us. See, if He has saved you, He has saved you to this new relationship, and in and, and His infinite wisdom, He has made the transition into this process where we learn more and more and more what it means to say no to ourselves. It begins with a decision. It begins with a, a decision to acknowledge Him as Lord, even that decision is a gift of His grace. Even that initial faith where we say, yes, He is Lord and I am not, and I would live for you, even that is His gift. But His gift doesn't stop there because the moment we've made that confession, we don't go two seconds before we turn back to our sin and, and again begin trying to control our lives and sit upon the throne. We must confess again and again and again. It's why Luther said that when he calls us to repentance, he calls us to a life of repentance. We will be repenting all our lives. We will be turning all our lives. And at every moment, we do that in humble reliance upon His grace. And so if you are here this morning, and you, you can see the fruit of this tendency to, to want to be your own Lord, and you can see the way that it shows up in your marriage, and you can see the way that it shows up in your parenting, and, and you are discouraged by it. Good. Good. Be discouraged. It is discouraging. But don't lose hope. Grieve, but not as one who has no future. Grieve as one who knows the hope of the gospel. Grieve as one who knows that God is not done with you yet. And that he can work to conform you more and more to the image of Christ. That like him, you might humble yourself. And like him, you may acknowledge that you are not the king. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. He became a servant. That we follow in his footsteps as we become a servant. But of course, to some, that still sounds crazy. To some, it, it sounds like the utter height of foolishness. Who would do that? Who would, who would give up the right to rule their own life? Who would become the servant of all? Who wants a life like that? That's the question that you're wrestling with. And be honest, some of us are, are wrestling with that. Some of us struggle to believe that, that anyone would actually want to do this. If that is where you are, then let's look briefly at God's response to Jesus' enemies. We don't, we don't see it explicitly in this text, but we, we see it throughout the Scriptures. We saw it in our call to worship this morning from Psalm chapter 2. Do you remember? 
Psalm 2, the nations are, are raging. They're, they're shaking their fist in God's face. They're saying, we will not be ruled by you. That's a picture of Judas. That's a, a picture of the priest. That's a picture of Satan. And what is God's response? God's initial response is to laugh. We're told that God holds them in derision. What does that mean? It means that that God is not threatened by their pompous claims to autonomy. God doesn't fear that that somehow his kingdom is going to be toppled. God doesn't fear that that somehow they are going to undo his, his plan. His plans will be accomplished. His anointed one will sit upon the throne. But notice also what those plans are. Notice what the anointed one will do, because this is the second thing we must see in God's response. Not only does he laugh, but he loves. You see, the plan that is going to be accomplished is that the anointed one will give his life as the ransom for his enemies. Yes, those who who persist in standing against God, they will be crushed like pottery. But those who take refuge in him, those who humble themselves and and believe in him, for them the Son will be crushed in their place. He will take their place. He will give his life. His blood will be spilt instead of theirs. It's what we see in the very next scene here in Luke chapter 22. He will be for them the Passover lamb. He will be for them the one who sheds his blood that they might live, that the wrath of God might pass over, that they might know his blessing instead of what they and themselves truly deserve. This, this is the gospel. This is the gospel that, that yes, Jesus has enemies And to be the enemy of Jesus means simply that you assert yourself. You you claim the right to the throne. And when you do that, you incur the wrath of God. You, You bring down His judgment upon your head. And that would be a hopeless place, except for the hope He supplies. For He sent His Son to die for those who were his enemies. He demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were hostile in mind towards him, while we were yet at enmity with him, Christ died for sinners. He came as the Passover lamb. And so therefore, we may lose our lives to follow him because in losing our lives to follow him, we will find true life indeed. The wisdom of the world says, cling to your life. It's your only hope. But Jesus says, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. If you cling to your life, you will be crushed beneath the iron scepter of my judgment. But if you will lose your life, and if you will acknowledge me as your king, And if you will bow to me as your Lord, if you will humble yourself and acknowledge that you are the servant and not the master, then you will receive a life beyond 
imagination. So the question before us this morning is we see this really dark picture of Jesus' enemies conspiring together. The question is this. Will we walk with his enemies or will we walk with the one who died for his enemies? Will we entrust our lives to the wisdom of Judas who says, get yours while you can? Or will we entrust ourselves to the wisdom of our Passover lamb? who said, I came not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's the challenge. That's the challenge. I challenge you this morning, in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, that you would renounce any claim to your own throne, that you would gladly submit to the one who is truly your king, For your good is inseparably bound up with his glory. And when he rules, it means life for you. But when you rule, it means death. So choose life. Choose life, not through your own performance, but choose life through the Son. Choose life through the Passover Lamb. Choose life through the one who gave his life that you might live. And because he is our Passover lamb, because he does offer us true and abundant life, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness to us, and we thank you for your grace. Father, we are humbled to see Jesus' enemies conspiring against him, and and we are scared to see ourselves in them. But Father, we are relieved to hear the good news of your gospel that tells us while we were yet your enemies, you died. And that in your grace, you will bring to completion the good work that you have begun. Father, carry on that work in us this morning. Set us free from the foolishness of sin that we might live fully to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.